The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Welcome to The Climate Papers, the podcast of the COP26 Universities Network, with me, Amanda Carpenter. Although we've now had COP26, the network continues to work collaboratively across the UK university community, examining and publishing resources and materials on key issues of climate change. We're delighted today to be launching a new series, the Climate Risk Podcast. And over the next seven episodes, we'll be discussing all aspects of climate risk and how best to communicate it. What does climate risk mean for public policy, security, public health and decision making? And how do we get that message across? In our first programme, we're talking about the importance of climate risk, and I'm joined by a panel of experts. Alyssa Gilbert is Director of Policy and Translation at Grantham Institute and an expert in environmental and climate change policy. Alyssa chairs the COP26 Universities Network and is the driving force behind the Climate Papers podcast. So Alyssa, it's great to have you back behind the mic. Hi, Amanda. My second guest, Emily Schuchberg, is a mathematician and climate scientist specialising in environmental data science, and she's director of Cambridge Zero, which harnesses the university's research and policy expertise to build a zero carbon future. Emily, welcome and thanks very much for being on the podcast. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Dr Chris Meyer is a neuroscientist and a director of the UCL Climate Action Unit. Chris brings insights from neuroscience and psychology to the communication of climate risk. Chris, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amanda. Pleasure to be here. And my fourth guest, Craig Hutton, is the Professor of Sustainability Science at the University of Southampton, where his applied research and consultancy focus lies at the intersection between the environment and social implications of environmental climate change and management for sustainable development. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you. So climate risk, as I've suggested, is a large and multifaceted topic, and we'll have plenty of time to discuss its many aspects over the series. But this first podcast is really helping us to set the scene. So we should probably start with some definitions. Alyssa, can you help us put some context around this? Yeah, sure. So as with with many terms that are used generally by the public, but also by the academic community. Something like climate risk is, is, is defining it's kind of a thorny issue, right? Um, but in general, when, when I think overall people talk about climate risk, they're trying to understand what is the impact that climate change can have in the future on both people and also on natural systems like biodiversity and so on. Now, when we break down climate risk in terms of the impact of climate change on those natural and human systems, we define climate risk as being made up of three parts. Actually, only one part of it is the actual change in the climate or a climatic event itself, which we refer to as the hazard. And then it's the impact is actually really dependent on how that hazard, so that change in something climatic like the temperature increase or a related precipitation event, et cetera, interacts with two other dimensions. So exposure, so who or what is actually exposed to that climatic change And then their vulnerability. So what's their propensity or the likelihood that they'll actually be affected by that in some way? So those three different dimensions, the hazard itself and the exposure of something to that hazard and then their vulnerability is what then relates to the risks of having an impact from that. Usually we talk about an adverse impact um, of climate change. And then taken together, when we talk about climate risk more broadly, which is made up of those parts, it's important when we talk about that in the public, because people's understanding of climate risk really influences our general sense of that we need to do something about it, that those risks could be big or 
bad um, or impact certain groups of people in certain ways. So our understanding of that risk is actually very important, has a very important link to how we understand the issue and what action we need to take on it. Thank you. And I guess that's why the Universities Network sees this as a subject that really needs such in-depth and thorough investigation and support. And I know through the Universities Network, you've been funding some research fellows and working alongside Cambridge University and the Cambridge Zero team. But, but I guess there's so much in there, isn't it, that needs to be unpacked for people because it's just one, one of those three alone, Hazard, could, you could spend well, years discussing and describing that and delving into the impact of that. So, so it's quite a multi-layered project. And I, and I was struck by the range and the breadth of the academics and the, and the areas of expertise that you brought together, Emily, and, and across so many different disciplines. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as Alyssa says, the key thing here is understanding what is the, the, the extent of climate related risk and then how we should respond to that. And that's absolutely critical, actually, for, for shaping the international discussions. You know, this project was put together in advance of COP26 because that understanding is so relevant to understanding the level of a response that's required in terms of mitigation, in terms of reducing emissions to limit um, those risks posed by climate climate change into the future, as well as the level of adaptation that's required um, to adapt to those climate-related risks that uh, will be in store in any case, and we're already experiencing around the world. And to gain that understanding really does require a very multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach, because as, as Alyssa has described, it requires a thorough understanding of the hazard. Um, you know, Some of that's in terms of the risk of extreme events occurring around the world. Some of it is in terms of um, the threat of a really large scale, potentially irreversible changes and the collapse of the of the vast ice sheets um, in the polar regions, for example. Um, but then also critically bringing in those dimensions of exposure and vulnerability and understanding how risks um, can propagate through our global system, whether it's through supply chains, with interacting risks that are um, interacting with un other underlying vulnerabilities in our global society. And then understanding how um, in the face of all of that, we ought to be responding and how a, a really key element that ran through much of the discussions in the risk summit that we um, held and many of the projects that the fellows undertook was understanding how to look at building preparedness and the response to the climate related risks. And I know that's something we're going to come on to discuss in much more detail in, in some of the other episodes. But but I was just struck by something you just said there, which is talking about, you know, describing some of those big climatic events like, you know, melting of ice sheets. I wonder if we've shifted our perception slightly, because it, it feels to me that and certainly some of the things that came out of COP is people were very aware of climate hazards in other parts of the world. We're becoming much more aware of climate hazards here in the UK as we, we suffer some more extreme weather events. But, but that element of vulnerability has perhaps not had so much exposure. People perhaps have not realised the risk of climate on things like supply chain, on things like their day-to-day -day ability to um, purchase goods and services. And Chris, does that feed into our whole understanding and perception of what risk is about? Yes, it does. Because brain-wise, there are two different ways that our brains perceive risk and, and, and come to a, a conclusion that a situation is risky. And the first one is what I would call risk as intuitive evaluation, where our brains automatically and intuitively perceive something as risky. We see that a situation is risky without having to do much 
uh, effort, much thinking effort to, to recognize a situation as, as risky. For instance, when you're crossing a busy road or when you're on your bike in traffic, we automatically see the things that are risky in that situation. If we don't, then we have an accident, we might die. Then the other situation is what we could call risk as formal analysis, where we establish formal frameworks like hazard, vulnerability, and exposure framework. We devise mathematical methods to crunch the numbers or training methods of professionals to, to deal with certain kinds of professional risk. And that risk as formal analysis is more a reasoning that something is risky rather than an automatic seeing that something is risky. Now, what is really interesting is if you become an expert in something, that reasoning why becomes more and more seeing that. The more you're an expert in something, the more your brains automatically and intuitively understand the risk that you're dealing with. Which means that if something has become really obvious to you as an expert as being risky, it might not be to other people for whom that process of the, the reasoning why hasn't resulted in their understanding of the seeing that of the, the risk uh, in that situation. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about the, the complexity um, of this situation. Indeed, it is highly complex, but it doesn't end there. That complexity then has to fan out into the climate change, the risk, uh, the hazard, the exposure don't happen in a vacuum. They happen within broader social contexts anyway. So food pricing, conflict, governance, government decisions about how we use land. Uh, and that's really, I think, one of the issues with the messaging is ensuring that that risk is identified, but also showing that that, that risk intersects with other risks, if you like, that aren't necessarily coming from the climate. And there can be an amplification. I mean, a, an example is we're working in Vietnam, the Mekong Delta, and you have an abundance of uh, climate related issues in terms of flood, in terms of drought, salinity, uh, coastline, sea level rise, causing the coast to erode, all sorts of things. But then people come and plonk a dam down in multiple places. And, and that exasperates the whole situation anyway. So you are looking at contextualizing the risk from climate and the fact that it has tendrils, if you like, to go out into other aspects of sustainability more broadly. It fits within a, a broad sort of pantheon of ideas and approaches. And that's why it can be a difficult thing to communicate when you've got limited, when people might have limited bandwidth for various disasters in their lives. We have to come up with ways that contextualize that so that it's digestible and approachable without, you know, as academics losing some of its contents. And I think that's what, you know, I'm interested in what uh, Lisa and Emily have been approaching, leading a number of projects about how do you do, how do you do that tightrope? How do you balance that relationship? And maybe if I can just add on to that as well, I think one of the things that is starting to become increasingly obvious really is just the many different dimensions of interconnectedness of this problem. So um, Craig has just been outlining one dimension and a, a different dimension of interconnectedness that, that I've come across recently. We've been working in the Cambridgeshire region with our local resilience forum. So this is where the emergency responders get together and in a general context, actually, not specifically in relation to climate change, work out how the emergency response can be made more resilient. And one of the examples that they were giving us was that uh, there were severe flash floods 
floods in London this last summer, in summer 2021. And although that was localized on London, it affected emergency responders throughout the country because services were being diverted into London from other mm. regions, yeah. reducing the resilience of those regions from which they came. You know, just one of a myriad of examples of the just interconnectedness that I think we're only just starting to scratch the surface of in terms of our in terms of our understanding. And some of the responses to that, I mean, you know, when you're posed with that complexity, we, we found in a number of projects that what we're trying to do is focus down on either local government responses around the world or to more regional and say, okay, look, we know the context. We, we've spent a lot of time contextualizing people understand where to some degree, particularly hazards, they're very much focused on and to some degree exposure, but we know a lot less. There's a lot less data, a lot less implementation around vulnerability. What is it about different people and their different contexts and their lives and their livelihoods that could help local responders? You know, we've got to be getting to that point where we've identified the problems to some degree, but what are the solutions and how can we as academics produce the kind of information or not just academics, of course, but the third sector, but how can we produce the kind of solutions or information that allow policymakers to think about solutions. And that's definitely led our group and I think others to saying, okay, let's let's talk with the policymakers, find out what are the issues in their world and help them identify the information that allows them to respond. And that can mean getting into, you know, understanding the difference in vulnerability, the, the degree to which people are susceptible, if you like, to climate from fishing people on the coast of Ghana compared to the agriculturists in land. And they can be very different and dynamically different under, under different times. But that's where I think a lot of focus is, is coming in is saying, well, the policymakers in that region are trying to understand how to respond and they need some resolution. And perhaps this is where our frameworks can begin to help in, in that area. I mean, I think this is something that's really interesting about climate risk, though, and Emily alluded to it, right, is that when we're talking about climate risk in terms of what you can then do with that information, it can lead to the kind of very localized um, or regional things that Craig are talking about around adaptation to climate change or how do we how do we manage the climate change that's already coming down the pipe. But there's also this very, very high level discussion, which is how can we talk about climate risks in a way that motivates this very high level international policymaking story or the mm. national governments to talk not just about managing the, the the inevitable climate change that's coming down the pipe, but on mitigation, which is reducing our greenhouse gas emissions so that we're reducing the risk of hazards. And, and in a way, the way that we have to talk about climate risk is quite different. That kind of very localized um, approach that Craig is talking about um, is very relevant to local adaptation actions across the piece. But how can we talk about this risk then in a way that it resonates with international policymakers, recognizes the complexity and the multidimensional interconnectivity of it that we've all just reflected, but then is also meaningful enough and 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 serious enough and in a way certain enough to drive very meaningful and rapid and urgent um, mitigation. That's a really interesting point you're making, Alisa. And in the work that we did with Chatham House last year, we ran many workshops with international policymakers to present them with risk information and then see how they how that would drive their thinking about mitigation action. And in fact, it doesn't. It doesn't in that way work. And maybe that chimes with your experience that, and, and that's why you bring it up. But where it does drive people's thinking too is adaptation action. When you present them with risky stuff, they, they either go the adaptation route or they start asking, 
So what do you want us to do with this? This was really visible in the workshop that we did where Emily came to present together with a couple of other people. And, and the, the people in the, in that Emily was presenting to started to ask, so what do we do with this information? What's the actions that we take on this? Rather than asking about the risk or asking about the climate science, they were asking the, the risk specialists about the actions they should take with that. And, and so that's a really, really big unresolved question. And we started with the Chatham House project, we started to do something around that space. We, we basically build a gym for policy action where we're training policymakers to pull policy levers because by itself, the risk information doesn't lead to them thinking like, oh, I can push this thing, taxation, I can pull that lever on spending to, to make action possible. It doesn't happen automatically. An interesting component of this is we can try to make decision makers, we can pitch and we do all the time. Uh, we did some work with UNICEF recently where we were right at a global level, one value per country, which academically isn't actually that profound, but it was UNICEF trying to drive governments to, to look at their ranking in the world in terms of child risk to climate. Now, what was really interesting about that wasn't really that we expected policymakers to say, crikey, I'm number eight, I want to move. It, it was picked up by people, the sort of Greta and et al, if you like. People then apply pressure. So sometimes you're, you're trying and maybe not doing a great job of communicating to decision makers because they're slightly in battle. But if your message is such that people, often not always voters, say, hang on, I'm really concerned about this, that has a much more of an effect uh, longer term. I think that, that it may be that a lot of the time what we're trying to do is convince the general public that this is significant because they're the ones who might actually influence decision makers. There may be different routes to those decision makers. So maybe that's sometimes where we could focus a little bit of that process. And I think where the whole framing of climate risk is so powerful is because Climate risk is what is relevant to people's lives. <laughs> now, it, it, in a way, the hazard, the purely meteorological um, phenomenon, is is only part of the story. And the thing mm. that really is the thing that impacts people, and and that is you know just as true if you're an individual or if you're a nation, you know, the head of government. Um, it's when you consider that broader context, and uh, uh, that, that that that's really the thing that matters. And I think that's why it becomes so much more compelling when you know the sort of work that Craig's been involved in with UNICEF, where it's translating the climate information through to the particular context that's relevant to children. It it yeah. really is what actually matters. And then combining that risk information together with solutions, co-designed solutions that bring in together the expertise that there is involved in the in the communities being impacted, then you start to really get to the stage where we can start to, to, to create responses. I, I'm concerned. I, I think you're absolutely right. But I'm slightly concerned by something you've just said, Craig, is that the idea that we could, while it's really important to work with communities directly on the ground, I'm thinking about you know, those who are perhaps not immediately affected, so maybe being a bit parochial and thinking about the UK. I'm concerned that if we've mobilised individuals on the street and the general public, that won't be enough because we all know that however big and vocal the mass movement is, 
it can easily be ignored by policymakers and politicians. So surely we've got to have a bottom up and a top down. So how do we get yeah. this? How do we communicate risk effectively to those people who do pull the levers of power who are in Chris's gym? How do we get that message across in terms I mean, my, of it being meaningful? And there's an interesting point here. I think that in the UK, certainly, and certainly in other parts of the world, when you go and talk with policymakers, they do know. We communicate risk, but it's, the issue isn't completely communicating risk. It's communicating the significance of risk such that it, the trade-offs, because let's be honest, it's easier for us. We're saying, look, look at this is happening. You should be doing something about it. But we're not the ones sitting in a chair who has incredible pressures on you for your funding that if you, you did do that, X number of people would be out of a job and you'll be on the firing. And your boss, you know, it's uh, as a, an old colleague of mine used to say, you know, they've got a day job to do and they're under huge pressure from left, right and centre. So we can communicate risk in certain ways. What I think we have to do is facilitate response. So maybe in an academic point of view is demonstrating and it is demonstrable that the future can be economically sound. And there are pathways where this becomes beneficial. We forget that being efficient with energy in itself is a good thing, regardless of carbon. We shouldn't be wasting energy. That, you know, burning fossil fuels is extraordinarily bad in many ways in terms of our health and its geopolitics. I mean, look at the geopolitics we're facing today around energy and have, let's be honest, since post-war. So there's all sorts of motivations. What we have to do is offer plausible solutions that aren't sort of thoughtless, that aren't saying you have to stop doing this and start doing that. And then, you know, quietly, I've had politicians and others say to me, I can't do that, even if I wanted to, and neither could you if you were in my position. So we have to listen very hard to decision makers and businesses. You know, I work, talk regularly with BP about what they're doing, and we can be cynical and jaded about some of it. There's lots of different people in there who have different motivations, some, I believe, some less so. But, you know, we have to engage with big private with government and think about plausible pathways. However we feel, we've got to navigate pathways. Otherwise, we'll have a warm, fuzzy feeling that we were right as the ship goes down. And I'm not sure how helpful that is. So, so that's exactly what our, our policy gym was trying to do, is trying to get them to think about the things they can do that will make climate change not uh, a problem that we just need to spend money on, but something that will bring us to a new society yes. where things will be better than where we are today. An opportunity in the end. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. And what was really interesting is that we observed also in the workshops that we ran exactly what you're saying is this idea that those who get that climate change is a problem say, but we're already doing everything we can. We can't do more. It's going to become too politically costly if we try to do more. So there's a group of people who think they're doing everything they can. And then there's a group of people who think they're doing everything that's needed to resolve the problem. That's another narrative that we came across. This idea that net zero by 2050 or 2060 or 2070 is enough to solve all the problems. So that's two big narratives that we came across. And both of them, of course, are not the thing that's going to get there. So we need to resolve both of these narratives. Does that go back to your point, Emily, about co-design and bringing people in into the conversation um, when thinking about, you know, what the impacts and the and the the outcomes could be? 
Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, co-design is absolutely central. The, the other thing that I was going to raise on the, on the issue of communication, which is just, you know, this has been a long-standing challenge in this area, but remains a, a critical challenge and is just difficult, is how do we effectively communicate scientific uncertainty associated with this? Because there's a real danger that if you don't appropriately communicate that scientific uncertainty to decision makers, then the, you know policies will be put in place that that actually maladapt to climate change that are, are not the most appropriate response. And so it is critical. I mean, that is also part of the co-design because you know, one way of addressing that is a much closer relationship between um, those with the, the scientific information and those who are designing responses and looking at the appropriate ways of designing responses in the face of that scientific uncertainty properly translated. But it, it remains a really, really important aspect of the communication around risk. And it's part of that, the problem that it's relatively slow burn. I mean, to go back to, to Chris's analogy of the bicycle, most of us have been on a bicycle and we know what happens if you get hit by a truck and we see it and it's fairly immediate. The impact of climate change in some areas can be quite, it's cumulative, but it can be relatively slow. So is that part of that challenge or is it just because it's... I mean, part of the challenge is just a fundamental scientific one that when it, you know, whilst our, our scientific ability to predict future global average quantities, particularly around temperature, is very robust. When we take that information down to a local level, you know, we know that even in terms of tomorrow's weather forecast, you, you can't predict whether or not it's going to rain, you know, at one particular point in your street. It becomes much more challenging. There is just fundamentally greater uncertainty in some aspects of our of our future projections. And occasionally, in a cynical way, that's a real problem that Uncertainty with communication has always been with science, but occasionally it offers a refuge for those who just don't want to engage with it. They say, well, how well do you know this? And in the rhetoric, as scientists, we can't say 100%. We know this, but we can say within all plausible future, this is happening. But people say, well, and there is that, that, you know, that disconnect between Scientists not wishing to be essentially you know, factually incorrect and say this is 100% and saying, well, it's 99.9%. And let's be honest, it's enough for you to act. It, it does offer those countries who may have, all those people who may, for, for huge reasons, they may be under huge pressure, a small refuge point, any kind of area. And that, that is a problem for us. We have to do everything. Absolutely. And they can utilise small chinks in that. And, and for some, that, and that's been seen to be done. We do see that. that yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's where that communication is so important, because as Craig Wiley says, many, many times people hear uncertainty and they think that that means we don't know. And yeah, actually, in a scientific context, that's not what we mean. We mean something no. very precise. We, they, I think people think the word uncertainty means guessing and it doesn't. <laughs> and that's, so we, you for, know, the, that's for the un, for the unaware what would you say uncertainty is in that scientific context then? Take, you know, say I'm a you know, politician who needs to be briefed. How are you going to get that message across to me? Because that's the crux of this really, isn't it? And not give me that opportunity to, if I may say, you know, parochially, wriggle off the hook and actually do nothing about my particular bit of the, the countryside because, you know, there's uncertainty, therefore there's room for doubt. So, so, so how do you communicate that? 
Well, there are different types of, of scientific uncertainty. Um, and, it, you know, some types of scientific uncertainty we can put actual numbers on. So, you know, it's essentially the error bounds on, on, on a result and we can be quantitative about what that level of uncertainty is. I mean, there was the famous uh, Donald Rumsfeld's uh, categorization <laughs> of known unknowns <laughs> and so forth, um, which is one way of describing the different types of uncertainties, you know. Um, so, so as I say, there are some things we can put actual quantitative information on. There are other aspects where we know that a climate-related risk could occur, but we don't know exactly when it might occur. Um, so that's a different type of, uh, of uncertainty. Um, and there are other aspects where we simply don't have a perfect understanding of the entire climate system and you know, surprises could happen. But that's where it's so complicated because there are very precise different ways in which we mean from a scientific perspective uncertainty and ensuring that we're effectively communicating those so that those who are making decisions understand what we mean um, yeah. when we talk about it is really, really important. To throw in sort of the, the neuroscience renegade hand grenade in here, I don't think we should be communicating uncertainty at all. And the reason for that is that every, anywhere in a decision-making process, whatever uncertainty exists is collapsed to a single point. Somewhere in that process of decision-making, a decision maker is saying, you know, I know there's lots of uncertainty, but I'm going to make my decision as if this thing is going to happen. And what we need to do as scientific community is help decision makers to collapse that uncertainty to that single point, rather than trying to explain that uncertainty to them. Because if we're successful in explaining our, that uncertainty to one policymaker, we create another communication problem down the line because now that one decision maker or policymaker has communication problems to explain to their downstream decision makers what that uncertainty means. So in that code design cycle that Emily spoke about before, what that should entail is that working together to help the decision makers to collapse the uncertainty around sensible points because we can't do that as a scientific community. We don't know which quantities are relevant for decisions. They can't do it if they don't understand what the uncertainty means, but working together, we can figure that out. I so for me, it's really... much less about communicating the uncertainty yeah. than about helping that decision-making process. Yes. Chris, is that what you mean when you talk about the difference between risk for storytelling as opposed to risk for decision-making, which is a, a phrase that really struck me when I was reading around the, the subject matter of the things you've been working on? Yes, indeed. It's like when uh, Alyssa was bringing up that point before about how do we use the, the big climate risk to drive these mitigation policies. And if you if you look at the kind of reporting that happens after the IPCC report comes out. That is risk for storytelling, that code red for humanity framing, that high level picture, this is how bad things are. It doesn't help decision makers to make decisions, except for in the local adaptation context where they start reaching for the adaptation tools, but it doesn't automatically drive them to the decision making on the mitigation. That's where you need to come up with uh, that core design process that we haven't mastered yet. We, we've, maybe we've got individual examples of that. We've, we've not cracked it as a community to come up with these examples where we work together with decision makers to help them understand the range of actions they can take 
to bring down that risk of, of climate change, that big story uh, risk of climate change. I mean, I think that's also where the public come in again. I mean, you mentioned the public um, and, and Chris mentioned this narrative that you've heard where governments say we can't do more because they think their political capital doesn't allow them to do more. Um, and that's where there is an important feedback loop with the public pressure that mm-hmm. then is actually an indicator to the people in that camp that they actually they do have more political space to operate than they thought. And if they are willing to go further, of course, that knowing what the right decisions then notwithstanding, it gives them at least, it at least removes that kind of political barrier. I would agree completely with that, that that is the role we give them the leeway to act because in a way they represent, but we're assuming in you know, democratic circumstances, but we give them that leeway to act. I mean, building on what Chris was saying, to play devil's advocate, I would say policymakers spend their entire time dealing with uncertainty. You know, they look at the economy, they look at uh, political risk um, in terms of conflict. You know, do you send your... There's this interesting idea that policymakers are blind to uncertainty. They're not dealing with it every day. And I've talked with them at What they can do is utilize that as a reason not to act until they get this political capital from people to act. And, and often it's out of you know political fear that they're sitting there saying, well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to risk things until I have to. So there is a role for this. And I, I don't think it, you know. Most of the policymakers I know say, oh, we know this. We understand the concepts of uncertainty more than you lot think we do. But we just can't act on this. And, and I think one of the things we should be, as a, an approach to this, is getting away from the idea that there is a single decision point. This is the decision. We need to go much more to an adaptive management strategy. That would be the paradigm is moving away from this idea that if we invest much more money, we'll get our uncertainty will get less and less. And you know, as I imagine Emily would agree, there are models where you, you tail off the amount of information you can get because of the noise in the background. There's a point you can't get more certain about the future. But what you can do is become more responsive to an uncertain future. So we need to start thinking of softer solutions rather than harder solutions, but simply, instead of perhaps building a wall, to hold back and see, do you build a green soft defence that maybe you can adapt to? If it doesn't work quite how you said it would, you can do X and Y. So one of the things I would like to see us working with, with policymakers is instead of saying, look, we're trying to force you into absolute decisions, which will be right or wrong, depending on which leave you pull, is can we begin to iteratively ensure the kinds of responses we do are ones you might be able to row back on, ones you might be able to modify. The hard part of that is politicians want to be seen to make the decision for the future, predictive management. We have to allow them the leeway, if you like, to make minor errors, but to progress. And that's adaptive management. It's a, you know, an idea that's been around for a long time, but it is not utilised for political reasons. We need to be pushing towards adaptive management that responds to the belief that uncertainty will always be there. We won't get rid of uncertainty, but we can acknowledge it and work with it. Yeah, I completely agree, Craig. I agree with that as well. But I think so. So that would be the, the ideal point to get to. But I think the reality of the moment is when when I say decision makers collapse the uncertainty, I'm not saying that they don't understand the uncertainty. Of course, they understand the concept, the concept of not knowing or there being multiple outcomes possible. Of course, they understand that. But in the decision-making process at the moment, 
they are collapsing it to single points that they can make decisions about rather than doing that adaptive management that they're do that you're describing. But your single then, point could be an adaptive response. Your single point doesn't have to be right. We will or we will not build a huge concrete wall and we'll do it now. You could say, okay, we are going to act, but let's think about how we act and monitor the response and, and navigate our way in an iterative way, which is, you know, monitoring feedback, be prepared to change. And that requires us as voters to uh, give the leeway for decision makers to say, actually, to row back a little bit. We've done that. That didn't work quite how we wanted. So what we're going to do is this and not say, oh, look, that's a terrible decision. They should be gone. So there's an onus on us as well as decision makers to loosen loosen the sort of response binding we put on ourselves that they must make absolute decisions and they must be 100% right. If they're not, they're wrong. This sort of binary black and white way of thinking we need to explore because, you know, as Emily said, there will always be uncertainty. And, and it should be said that there are examples where yeah. that sort of adaptive management approach has already been undertaken. It, particularly in the example of climate adaptation. I mean, especially in, in, in the context of looking at flood defences, which was one area yes. that, that Craig himself um, mentioned. So the Thames Barrier, for example, um, well, you know, it really essentially was an adaptive management approach that was, that was used to look at, at a number of years ago at uh, a future plans for where the Thames Barrier need, may need to be strengthened. Um, similarly, some of the coastal flood defence projects that exist around the UK, uh, it's similarly, adaptive management approaches have been used yes. To, yes. to look at those. So it is something that is being used in the climate adaptation community, but it's undoubtedly something that could be used more. So without wanting to kind of depress everybody, I think one of the tricky things, though, is, of course, the sense of urgency. And I think that is a real challenge here because a lot of, I mean, even the broader sense of climate risk was understood for decades. Um, and I think that one of the things about the processes that we're describing of how climate risk can be understood and used effectively, it's not always very quick. Um, and this, and I think the sense that there needs to be urgent action often pushes people away from that kind of approach that you were describing. Um, and it also, it also the way in which we describe climate risks and the way in which it motivates individuals, whilst that can also be constructive in decision-making, it can also just create this sense of pressure that doesn't necessarily lead to, to good, effective, successful decision-making. It's interesting, as you're saying, Lisa, they, are we guilty of always framing these things as risk and fear, and of course they are, to some extent, that, that elicits the same response. This is how we seem to behave as humans. We look at, there's a conflict, we build up, we do it, this is happening. I mean, we never seem to be framing it around opportunities to change society, to be more equitable, to level up. You know, it seems that some of these sustainability issues actually are are allowing us to look at ourselves as a whole society and address things about us that perhaps should have been addressed some time ago. The Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter, just being examples of that, what Greta's, I mean, these are bigger than the climate, but they're definitely linked to our thinking about society. And we've started to network these together. How do we frame these as opportunities that ultimately could lead, you know, without in any way diminishing the impacts of, of what we're doing lead to a, a more positive society. Because that's what the thing that stops me being completely depressed. And let's be honest, I imagine everyone here who's worked in has had moments of just you think, wow, 
what you know you feel like you're scratching the surface of something is the thought that maybe this could lead to real transitional change in who we are as global society you know that's a bit you know cuddly, <laughs> but it's it's it, that's what motivates me and i wonder if chris finds that should we be reframing some of these things to to stop people just sinking into the mire and thinking i can be motivated I mean, but maybe, maybe just before Chris responds, the, the other point around that, I think, is that every risk can be turned into an opportunity. And yeah. what we've been talking about, about the real challenge of climate change is the interconnectedness of the risks and the cascading risks and so forth. When you look at that through an opportunities lens, then you can also look at the interconnectedness of the opportunities and how action on really? one area, um, you know, that addresses one vulnerability of our society can actually bolster the resilience of, in terms of other areas. So you get works you both exactly ways. the opposite way around as well. Absolutely. And should we yeah. be doing a bit more focus on that? I don't know. Can we? I'm going to give so, the, the, the closing words on this because we should draw this to a conclusion. And actually what I think you've done is set the stage for, for the remaining six podcasts with some of the issues that you've raised. But but Chris, sorry to let you to let you respond to that point briefly. So absolutely, yes, is the answer. So solutions and opportunities will be a framing that will be much more empowering to people than only talking about the problems. But there's something else than, um, than the, the risk that makes people fearful or, or thinking of, of the need to get the urgency across. The best way to get urgency across of a situation is to talk about the things that you're doing to address it. This isn't necessarily solutions or opportunities. These are actions that you're taking to avert the risk. And there is this idea that if we get people in the right mental state, they will start to act. It's not necessarily the case. Now, first of all, people can be misperceiving the risk that you're trying to communicate. And secondly, it can disempower them for various reasons. It can make them switch off. It can paralyze them with anxiety and so on and so forth. If, on the other hand, you start talking about this is what we're doing because there is a serious problem, if you start talking about the actions you're doing to avert the risk, you not only get much better the risk across and the scale of the urgency and the need for the action to the person you're communicating, but also uh, at the same time, you're giving them the recipe to start acting in their own lives. Uh, that may be policymakers, people in business, uh, people in finance organizations and the general public. For all of us, seeing other people take action is what makes us understand that something is a problem, but then also gives us the way to deal with that particular problem. Two data points on this. Uh, during COVID, uh, public polling found that people's perception of how risky the COVID situation was, was mostly influenced by the actions the government was taking to address it, not by the risk communication, by the actions the government was doing at that particular moment. Second data point, the Environment Agency tested two messages on flood. One was explaining flood risk. The other one was stories of people taking action to avert the flood risk. The second one, the second framing was much more effective, not only in getting the problem across, but then also inspiring the agency in people to act themselves. So telling stories of action is a good communicator of risk and urgency and also a good communicator of action itself. And therefore, it's, it's, we need to move away from just the risk framing and try to do, try to do it more and more in an action-based format. 
Thank yeah. you, Chris. That's a, a fantastic point to end on. And, and I would say, I think that the general public, as with so many things, are, are possibly one step ahead of some of the decision makers and the politicians on this. And there is a desire for both information and action. So, you know, being able to communicate that effectively is enormously helpful. I should draw it to a, to a close, but I don't know if anyone has any other burning points they wanted to make briefly before we say goodbye and lead on to our other podcasts. I did want to add one very quick point, which I felt would help, is in a lot of our work, Emily really addressed this by saying co-production. We really have to take that extremely seriously in that we can try to impose um, our ideas or governments can or whoever on people and they can become maladaptive. You know, in Bangladesh where we've worked, they said, well, all the salt's coming in, let's just all go to shrimp farming. But that got taken over by big business and most people got pushed off the land. It was highly maladaptive. Um, so we, we do need to understand what local people want, be it here in the UK or anywhere in the world, how they can adapt in their local environment is not the only solution, but it, it really is important that we listen because a lot of communities have generations of experience of dealing with climate change. And maybe they, what they're asking for is somewhat different from what we think, whoever we are, they may need. And that's why we need this vulnerability data at a higher resolution. If we can get localized responses motivating people, you know, as Chris is saying, if I can actually get out to my local community and do stuff, I'm going to feel much better about the overall approach. I might be more motivated, but I understand my local environment much more. And we've had many examples where our understanding was wrong. And when we mm-hmm. talked to people, we understood they needed other things in their world to, to adapt. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's the, the key part of communication, isn't it? It's as much listening as it is talking. Yeah. And, and sadly, today we've run out of time for talking. So it's my job to thank my guests hugely, Emily, Elisa, Chris and Craig. Thank you so much for being with us and for helping us to set the scene for what I now know will be an immensely interesting series of podcasts around climate risk. So huge thank you to you for giving up the time. You've been listening to the Climate Papers, a climate risk podcast. Uh, Do visit the COP26 Universities Network website where you can download previous episodes and subscribe to this series so you never miss another one. So thank you to my guests and and goodbye. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. 